You will turn in your Bibles this morning and read with me a couple of verses that have already been read. I'd like for us to look at these again, and I trust that you will get the blessing that I have had in preparing this this morning. Ephesians, the third chapter, verses 18 and 19. Ephesians, the third chapter, verses 18 and well, let's put it 19 and 20. And to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye may be filled with the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. You know, I, I don't believe that too many of us have ever experienced really the fullness of God. You look back, some of us have had some pretty dark experiences the last two or three months. Some of us have been meeting temptations, lost of a, loss of a loved one, and problems that come our way. But it tells us here that when we really know the love of God, it will pass all understanding that ye might be filled with the fullness of God. Now, to help us understand this today, I want to talk about a man that you've all heard about, Moses. I want to look into his life this morning and see how God did something more than he could even think of something more than he ever dreamed of even asking for. This is the kind of a God we have. I want to testify this morning that our Lord is surely good to us. When you think of all the blessings in spite of the problems, I think we shall see more what kind of a Savior we have when we look at Moses, that great general. Now in the day of Moses, he was leading the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. For 40 years they had been in the wilderness, and it was now time for them to go to Cana. And they could look over the hills and see the land of promise, well watered, the fig trees, the palm trees. They could see the vineyards. And uh, they were about to pass over, and they were going to go to that land, and they had to cross through a little area of what was known as Edom, well watered. And now God tests them. He wants to prove if they have finally come to a time when they will rely on his promises and remember what he has done for them in the past. He cared for them so much in the wilderness Perhaps we can look at just a couple of the things that he did for them. Look at the supply of food. Who would have ever dreamed of taking two million people out into a wilderness where there wasn't a thing to eat? They have no trucks like we have today. They had no trains that they could bring the food in, and two million people take a lot of food to eat. And for 40 years... Every night he rained down angels' food. And it was food that had every essential vitamin, had everything that needed to be healthy, so there wasn't a sick person among them. What a God! I want to tell you, when the Lord does things, he does things right. Amen. 
And then think of the water that they would need. Two million people plus at least three to four million animals. I want to tell you, you look at any city that large today and you look at the water supply and it's a river. Millions and millions and millions of gallons every day are needed for water. And when you think about in the desert where the water would run, they had no pipes, so it just had to run out there. And when you look at the evaporation problem, and when you look at the seepage problem in the sand, you can realize that it took an enormous amount of water to bring them an adequate supply day by day. Wherever they camped, however, they had water gushing out. There was a rock. And the Lord had told Moses, now you just strike the rock once. And after that, all you have to do is just speak to it. And when you need water, it will gush out. And when I say gush out, that's the words that the Bible uses. In Isaiah, he claved the rock and the waters gushed out. But the David, the psalmist, he brings it to our view in Psalms 105 and he says the waters ran in the dry places like a river. Oh, they were all the water that they needed. An abundance of water. Now this rock, of course, was Jesus Christ. Christ wants to always be with his people and there he was in the form of a rock. There he was bringing the water to his people. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Life-giving water. And uh, as it tells us, when Moses smote the rock once, it represented Jesus Christ. For you remember he was smitten once. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. As it says in Hebrews 9.28, once offered to bear the sins of many. Now, of course, the Savior was not to be smitten twice. We have a great system in the church today called Roman Catholicism in which they smite Christ all day long. They crucify him all day long. For in their teachings of this church, they kill Christ, literally, in their teachings so that they may be able to provide the bread and the wine, the wine, the blood of Christ. And they boast that there isn't a moment anywhere in the world where what they're not taking the life of God, their creator. But this is not Bible theology. That is, if I may speak boldly, the terms of paganism. But the Bible tells us that he was to be smitten once for our sins. For he is the rock. He is a rock that is higher than I. He is the fountain of life, the water of living water. I will pour water upon him, floods upon dry ground. And if you think that this was really a miracle, when the rock would bring forth waters, millions of gallons gushing out day by day, this is nothing. When you think of God today in heaven, and there it says, out of the throne proceeds the river of life. And as you read Ezekiel, you find that that river is at least two miles wide. And there's a tree growing on either side, united in the top about seven miles in height. 
Think of the water gushing out. With God, creation is nothing. Here the water is just coming out of the throne. This was nothing for God to do. All things are possible with God to bring water into the desert. Well, here was Israel on the borders of Cana. And God said, all right, I'm going to see if they're going to remember that I'm able to care for them. And so he shut the water off. The rock didn't bring any water. In just a few hours, you know what it's like in the sun. Out in the desert, the heat, they needed water. They begin to, mouths begin to get parched and they begin to wonder where the water was and they begin to cry and they begin to murmur and they could look out and see just a few miles away was Canaan with all the water they needed. But what did they do? They began to murmur. And they said, would to God that we had died with our brethren back there before the Lord in the rebellion of Korah. They forgot about God. All they had to do was say, Moses, just go over there and ask of the rock. And you can have all the water that you want. I wonder sometimes when problems have been coming to us of late if we haven't been tempted a bit to forget that God has been caring for us and that this great God is able to still care for us. And Moses, you can well understand this great leader. So many times he had spoke to the rock and in his adversity this time he went to the Lord and said, Lord, what shall I do? What the Lord said, and I'm reading, Take the rod and speak unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock. But somehow old Moses, his patience was gone. For 40 years, God had been feeding, he had been clothing these people. He had been giving them all the water they needed, and now they said, would to God that we would die. And he went up to the rock, and he did something he lost his patience and he took that rod and he smote it twice. And then he cried, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And he destroyed the spiritual lesson. The wonderful lesson that Christ once died and thereafter whenever we sinned, we didn't have to crucify him again. We just had to go to him and say, Lord, and he would give us of that wonderful flow of forgiveness. And so it was such a terrible thing that he did in destroying this wonderful lesson that the Lord said, Moses, you're going to have to die for this. Now you might think he was a bit harsh. In Numbers 20, verse 12, it says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Because ye believe me not, to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given. You're going to have to die. You can't go into Canaan. And remember, my friends, this had been his whole goal in his life. For 40 years as he was in Egypt, for 40 years as he unlearned all the bad things about Egypt, and then for 40 years out into the wilderness guiding the people to Canaan, a hundred and... 20 years. He has one main goal. I want to go to Cana. I want to take the people of God there. And now God says you can't go. Well, let me tell you, Moses was the kind of a man that repented. He saw immediately his mistake. And he asked God to forgive him. And God always forgives. 
But God did not change the sentence. When they were nearing the land of Cana, as he led them a few more days and they were about to go in, he could see that beautiful land over there and oh, how he wanted to go and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed to God and he said, and I'm reading it in Deuteronomy 3, 25, let me go over, let me see the good land that is beyond there. Oh, he wanted to put his hands into the soil. He wanted to drink some of the water. He wanted these blessings, the goodly mountain and the Lebanon. But the Lord was wroth with me, I'm reading, and would not hear me. And the Lord said unto me, let it suffice thee. Speak no more unto me of this matter. Moses, shut your mouth. Don't you ask again. I have made up my mind. This is the way it's going to be. And you are going to die for your sin. Now you say, that's kind of a harsh God. Oh, but I want you to remember that though God in times is harsh in our way of thinking, he is also a kind God and a God of love. Remember, when Jesus was here, he was revealing the character of his Father. It was the same voice of Jesus that said, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law. But it was his same voice that said, Come unto me. All ye that labor in I will give you rest. It was the same voice that spoke in judgments. Depart from me, ye cursed. It was the same voice that said, Forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. Oh, the God that we serve is a God of mercy and a God of love and a God of impartial justice. And so Moses had to die. Finally the day came, they were just about to go into Cana. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 49 and 50 it said, And God said, Get thee up into this Mount Arab, into Mount Nebo, which is the land of Moab, and over against Jericho, and behold the land of Cana, which I will give unto the children of Israel. God says, all right, I'll, I'm going to let you see it from the mountaintop. Which I give unto the children of Israel for a profession, possession. And die in the mount, whither thou goest up, and be gathered unto thy people. As Aaron thy brother died in the mount Horb, and was gathered unto his people. Because ye trespassed against me, the children of Israel, at the waters, in the wilderness of Zin. Because ye sanctified me not in the midst of the children of Israel. Have you ever thought of Moses' last walk? The Lord says, all right, this is the day. Now when you get to the top of the mountain and you take a look, then you're going to die. How would you have walked up that mountain? I don't know, but I, I kind of got a hunch that I'd have taken one step and I said, well, I'm going to sit here for a long time, maybe three or four hours, and then I'll take another step. And maybe I can put this off for maybe a few days. Maybe, maybe it'll take me a month. Or maybe it'll take me a year to go to the top of this thing. Not, Moses wasn't that way. We're told that Moses went up there just like a young man. You take some of these young people and when they go they almost run. He had all the health and the strength and the vigor. God had blessed him with this kind of a physique. And he went right up that mountain says in Deuteronomy 34, 5 and 6, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab. 
according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab over against Beth Peor. And no man knoweth his sepulcher unto this day. Now I want you to catch the beautiful lesson out of this. You say, well, what's so beautiful about it? He made a mistake and God said, you, you're going to have to die for it. Ah, but let's look back now at these texts that were read this morning. If you look in your Bible at Ephesians, the third chapter again, I want you to begin with verse 14. For this cause, it says, I bow the knee unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Isn't that beautiful? We're a part of the family of heaven. Saints here on the earth. Verse 16. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Oh, he wants to do something for us. This mighty God wants to do something for us in our hearts. Notice the next verse. Verse 17. That Christ may dwell in your heart by faith that ye being rooted and grounded in love. That word in the Greek, to dwell, means to inhibit. It means to abide. The same Lord that wanted to be with his people and was in the form of a rock there, always with his people, wherever they camp. the same Lord wants to abide in our heart and he wants to pour us out rivers of blessings, just as he did to Israel. 17, that he may dwell in your heart, how is it done? By faith, that ye being rooted and grounded, don't you like those words? In love, it means to be rooted in the soul of the firm foundation. Verse 18, that ye may be able to comprehend, that's beyond our comprehension something here, to perceive, it says with all the saints what is the breadth and the length, and the depth, and the height. Oh, this is something that God is so great in his abundance of blessings that we can't comprehend it. It's so high, so wide, so deep. To know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. It's something that our finite, our little minds cannot comprehend. It's so tremendous that he might be filled with the fullness of God. Not only does he want to fill our cup till it's overflowing, there is something about God and his creative power for us that he wants to fill our cup more than full. Now unto him that he is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that ye ask, or thing. Now, that word in the Greek, exceeding abundantly, is herperek persiu. It means entirely above all bounds. It's a compound word meaning superabundance, above and beyond fullness, and overflowing. In fact, in our English language, the words used here, it's a superlative on top of a superlative. 
above all things, to do exceedingly above all. This is the kind of a Savior, this is what he wants to do for you and for me, and I want to show you that he did this for Moses. Now, let's take Moses again. For 120 years he was longing to see Cana, but here God says you're going to have to die on this mountain. But look what Jesus did for him, more than Moses could even think, more than he could even ask. For the first time in the history of this world, Jesus Christ comes down after three days and resurrects him. It says he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. Moses never thought about the fact that he had to die, that he could ask God to resurrect him. It never came into his mind. But here comes Christ with his angels, and he comes down here and he contends with Satan. When Satan sees him, he says, uh oh, I'm going to keep Satan. Uh, Satan says, I'm going to keep Moses. The Lord said, the Lord rebuked thee. Can you imagine <coughs> when Moses awoke, there was Jesus Christ standing over him with all the angels, and the first thing he looks into is the face of Jesus without a veil. In his day in the sanctuary, he had to put a veil over his face. When he went up the mountain, he said, God, I'd like to see you. God said, well, I'll let you see my back part. No man can look upon me and live. But now here, without a veil between, he has granted the privilege, the first thing when he looks into the face of Jesus, to see him with nothing between. What a wonderful thing God was doing for him. God says, I can do more for you abundantly, exceedingly abundantly, above all that you can even ask or think. There he saw all the angels. And then he found that he was clothed with immortality, holding the title in the name of his Redeemer. He had a new body. Think of the vigor and the power, the strength that he had, and the abilities that were now his. And never again to be tempted by Satan. Have you thought of what Jesus was able to do for this fellow Moses? He took him to heaven and for 3,000 years before the resurrection of the righteous. For 3,000 years, Moses has been in heaven today. I want to tell you, when God says he can do something more than we can ask or think, he certainly did it for Moses. And then think of the things that he had planned for him when Jesus was here on this earth. A thousand years later after his resurrection, Jesus was in human flesh and he needed strength. He needed a fresh hold on omnipotence. Here he was praying on the mountainside. He was praying for his disciples and he was praying and suddenly God answers his prayer. Let me read it to you from Desire of Ages. While he is bowed in lowliness upon the stony ground, suddenly the heavens open, and the golden gates of the city of God are thrown wide, and holy radiance descends upon the mount, enshrouding the Savior's form. 
divinity from within flashes through humanity and meets the glory coming from above. Rising from his prostrate position, Christ stands in godlike majesty. The soul agony is gone. The countenance now shines as the sun, and his garments are white as light. The disciples awaken, beholding the flood of glory that illuminates them out. In fear and amazement, they gaze upon the radiant form of their master. As they become able to endure the wondrous light, they see that Jesus is not alone. Beside him are two heavenly beings in close converse with him. They are Moses, who upon Sinai had talked with God, and Elijah, to whom the high privilege was given, granted to but one other of the sons of Adams, never to come under the power of death. Here is Jesus Christ needing strength just before he is going to go forward to crucifixion. And what does God do? He sends Moses and Elijah to give him help and courage. You see, the tables are turned. It's now Moses who is strengthening Christ. What a privilege. Moses upon the Mount of Transgression Transfiguration was a witness to Christ's victory over sin and to death. As Jesus beheld him, he realized that what he had done for Moses was all because of what he was going to do on the cross. And it gave him courage and it gave him strength. Notice this. These men chosen above every angel from around the throne had come to commune with Jesus concerning the scene of his suffering. The hope of the world, the salvation of every human being was the burden of their interview. What a privilege Moses had to bring courage to Jesus Christ. To there, stand there and, and to reveal to him that he was in heaven because of what he had done for him and what he was going to do for him. What a privilege. But that's not all. When Moses went up on the mountain to die, just before he died, the Lord gave him a vision of time down to the end of time. He not only saw the crucifixion of his Savior, he saw him coming in glory. But before he saw him coming in the glory, he also saw him returning to heaven. And we are told that at that point, before he died, Jesus revealed to him that when the Savior had been crucified and had died and had been resurrected, that it would be given to him the privilege of opening the gates of the city, the new Jerusalem, for the return of Jesus. Let me read that to you. In Patriarchs and Prophets 476, Moses looked again. He beheld him coming forth as a conqueror ascending to heaven, escorted by adorning angels, and leading a multitude of captives. He saw the shiny gates open to receive him, and a host of heaven with song of triumph welcoming him their commander. And you know you read over there, David, how David in the Psalms pictures the beautiful group as they were returning to heaven, and one group of angels cries to the gates and to those on the walls and how they return. This is what he pictures. And then it says it was 
there revealed to him that he himself would be the one who should attend the Savior and open to him the everlasting gates. I want to tell you, when Moses died, he had all the assurance that he was going to live again. He had all the assurance of the wonderful hope that it would be given to him to open the gates of the city of God when Jesus Christ arose and ascended. I could think of nothing more wonderful than what God did for Moses and then to realize that Moses has been in heaven these last 2,000 years assisting Christ in the great sanctuary above as a priest. Christ himself, the high priest, and there is Moses up there as one of those of the redeemed, helping to take care of all of our sins. What more could God have done for Moses than he did? Up there, as I read in Revelations, the fifth chapter, verses 8 to 10, we read about the four beasts and the living elders, how they fell down before the Lord, and they cried and they sung a new song, Thou art worthy to take the book to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred, tongue, and people, and nation, and hath made us unto our God kings and priests. I want to tell you, Moses, what a wonderful thing. If he'd had it any other way to do, he'd say, Lord, your way is the best way. Oh, yeah, I'm sure he didn't realize it when he was going up the mountain to die. There are many things in this world we can't understand, but all oh, we can by faith believe that all things work together for good. What's the rest of it? To them that love the Lord. What a privilege he had. God is able to do exceeding abundantly for us. I read in Patriarchs and Prophets 5.54, All heaven awaits our demand upon its wisdom and strength. God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. In Desire of Ages 6.79, I read, Christ rejoiced that he could do more for his followers than they could ask or think. He spoke with assurance, knowing that an almighty decree had been given before the world was. He knew the truth, armed with the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit, would conquer in the contest with evil, and that the blood-stained banner would wave triumphantly over his followers. He knew that the life of his trusting disciples would be like his a series of uninterrupted victories, not seen to be such here, but recognized as such in the great hereafter. Could we ask any more for our God? When God looks at us, oh, I want to tell you when God, what God has prepared for us in the future, let us not this week ever allow discouragement to come into our hearts. Let us not in any way uh, think about 
the problems that we have, but rather this week let us rejoice that in Jesus Christ our sins are forgiven. Let us rejoice this week that Jesus Christ is in heaven with Moses and there they are presenting before God the Father us who are sinful that in the righteousness of Jesus we stand as though we have never sinned. Let us rejoice that God is preparing a place for us in heaven. Let us rejoice that truth is going to reign triumphantly in this world. That his word is going to succeed. Can I close today with those wonderful words, cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. Oh, I want to tell you, our God is able to do for us exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. 1 Timothy 6.11 But thou, O God, man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness and godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. You know, it was a wonderful privilege to find a place that was up in the mountains to live, and fortunately, I suppose looking over all of you who are here today, you do not have quite the same privilege that I have. You live in the mountains, but I'm so situated that I can look over to the valley, and I can see the coastal range. And I can see a span from Sacramento down to Lodi and all the way down to Modesto. Especially at night when the lights come on from the cities, I can see these. But one of the things that has really been a joy to me is to live up above the fog. Now I, for a few years, uh, I pastored in Sacramento and one thing I hated was that pea soup fog that could come in there night after night. There were times when you could hardly drive around the block. And other times I see week after week, month after month, I have seen the fog settle over. And I know it's cold, it's damp, and it's wet. And it gives you a, an unhappy kind of a feeling. And yet, to live up here above it, the sun is shining, what joy there is to look out on the mountains and uh, what a change. Now this is really what I want to talk to you about this morning. You know, many people live in an up and down religion. They live down in the fog, in the cold, and uh, they don't enjoy Christian life. Once in a while they get up the mountains and oh, what a joy it is. They see the sunshine. Now, I want to tell you that it is possible to have inward rest and outward victory all the time through the grace of God. It's our birthright. Will some of you sort of this morning go back in your minds to the time when you first met Jesus? Maybe it was a youth. Maybe it was later on in life after you'd been married. But you found the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a change there was. You found victory. But then you also notice uh, as you look back upon your life that uh, 
sometimes victories were few and there were many defeats and you were sort of living in the fog. You didn't have the joy that you should have. Oh, you know the doctrines. You know that Jesus is coming again. You know all about the Ten Commandments. You know about the millennium. We don't need to go into those, but the experience you had, something about it, you realized that you just didn't have all that God wanted to give you. My question is, must you always live in the fog, as it were, or can you not live on the sunny slopes? Must it be the valley, or can't you have a mountaintop experience? Now, there are three words that I want to talk about, and they're all in the writings of Paul, and they are these. Retreat. Stand. Advance. Let's talk about the first one this morning, retreat. You'll notice our text in the uh, sixth chapter, verse 11. For thou, O man of God, let's stop there for a moment. I believe this morning I'm talking to all who choose to be God's people. Men and women following God. It says, but thou, O man of God, flee these things. There are some trials, there are some temptations, there are some things that we need to flee from if we're going to have a mountaintop experience. You know, General Tymoshenko of Russia has been considered in our time the world's greatest leader of strategic retreat. He led his army day after day, week after week, month after month from Poland back, back further into Siberia, back into that country of Stalingrad, till finally the time came when he was to make a stand. And he did. And then he advanced and gained the victory. Now this is the experience that I want you to think of this morning. You know, there's a time when God says, as Christians, we ought to run. We ought to flee. We ought to get away from it. We need to leave it alone. We have nothing to do with it, to avoid it. I want you to examine some of the things that uh, Paul was talking about. Notice verse 4 in this chapter of Timothy, the sixth chapter. Verse 4. The first thing he talks about, he says we ought to flee from proudness, pride. In the book of uh, Proverbs, the sixth chapter, verse 16, it says, there are six things that the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination to him. And the first thing he lists is a proud look. And I want you to notice the category that he places it in because as you read on, he says, a lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood. He puts it right in with some of the sins like murder. Pride. You've heard of the expression, pride goeth before a fall, and you know that's true with Lucifer, for that's where it started. Pride. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. 
It's really the root of all sin. We must learn to live humble lives if we're going to live in the cloud, above the clouds. If we're going to have a mountain time experience with the sunshine of God's grace in our hearts. You see, there's something about this business of pride that it stunts. It stifles. It weakens. And it eventually destroys. That's where it began in the heart of Lucifer. Now, it, uh, some of us will never have that experience. He was so good-looking. And when he looked at himself in the mirror, why, he was one of the most beautiful creatures, if not the most beautiful that God had ever made. Now, some of us uh, <laughs> look at ourselves. We're not going to come into that. But there are other ways to have pride. Maybe it's in achievements. We can do something better than somebody else. Uh... We've got more things than other people have. And we've, these things become a form of pride to us. But pride must not be. Then notice the next thing he mentions. Strife. Strife is something that has to go if we're going to live in the sunshine of God's happiness. What am I talking about? Something that, uh, and I'm talking to myself this morning for I have these problems just as you do. How easy it is to get angry. And that's what strife is all about. Impatient. I guess some of the travels that I took to, uh, took a lot of that out of me. I learned that sometimes the plane, uh, I couldn't do anything about it. When I got to the airport late, it had already left. And there I was stranded for 24 hours. No place to sleep. Out in some of these uh, stick places. I remember in Entebbe one time got stuck out there, a little airport, there was nothing, had to stay there, missed the plane. And it's easy to become so impatient, to become irritable, to lose our temper. Did you know that God calls it sin? Many of our homes, there's continuing bickering between husband and wife. Oh, that somehow we would let strife flee it. Get away from it. What a difference it would make in the home. How many homes would never separate if there wasn't strife. And the children. So many times there's argument between the children and the parents and the, the sweet aroma of the Christian love. It just goes out the window as it were. Let's confess this thing. Let's live like God would have us to, without strife. And another thing he mentions, it's the green-eyed monster of envy. I'm putting my finger on some things this morning. Did you know it slays before we realize it? Proverbs 6.34 says, For jealousy is the rage of man. Therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. You know, there are some people that are actually jealous of others because somebody can play the piano better than they can. Well, I've seen them. I've heard them talk about it. And there are other people uh, that actually get jealous because they think the pastor is visiting or spending a little more time in such and such a home, but he never comes to mind. They don't understand that maybe that home is having a lot of problems that really needs him. <coughs> 
But in thinking these things, you're putting yourself in a position where you're soon going to need the pastor. But thou, O man of God, flee these things. Pride, strife, envy, these are things, brothers and sisters, that keep the sunshine of happiness out of our hearts. The joy of Christian living. Notice another one, railing. What's railing? Well, I suppose if they had written the Bible today and in the modern language, they would have put gossiping, for that's what railing is. And you know, it says in the Word of God, James 1.19, Be swift to hear, but slow to speak. James 3.6 says, The tongue is set on fire of hell. More deadly sometimes, I think, than the atomic bomb in what it will accomplish. Everywhere there are those that are trying to tell some story about something that's not so good in somebody else's life. Let's confess our sins in this matter. Let's get rid of, uh, shall we call it, filthy communications. If we can't talk about the good, then let's not talk about anything. And then uh, this man, Paul, adds evil surmising. You know, the, the Holy Spirit is really reaching down now and touching the deeper thoughts in the heart. Nobody else knows about it. This is evil surmising. Your wife doesn't know about it. The husband doesn't know about it. No one in the family, the pastor doesn't know about it. These things sometimes that we sort of think about other people that is not true, we, we surmise. Oh, to live happy lives to leave this thing out. These are things that we are to flee. And then you'll notice in the 10th verse, let's slip over to that one, it says, for the love of money. Oh, you say, well, Brother Nelson, now you're talking about something that doesn't bother me any. I haven't got any money to love. That isn't what it says. Did you notice? For the love of money. You know, there are those in this world that don't have anything, but their whole obsession in life is to have it. And they will do anything. They commit any sins. They do anything to get money. They don't have it. It's the love. Where are your hopes centered? Here's a trap. The love has kept so many out of the kingdom. I, I remember in my working one time in a and meeting which I was having for young people in a school, a week of prayer, and there was one young man that sat there the whole time. He was more adult than the others, and he was going back to school to get his education, and uh, he sat there and he was so defeated in his looks, and there was something wrong, and finally he came to visit with me, and he, he said, you know, he said, I, I'm living down in the clouds all the time. I, I don't have a, the kind of experience that I ought to have. Something's wrong. And I talked to him about praying, about going to church and living a clean life. And then I touched something about paying tithe. And I saw his face fall. And I knew that this was the problem in his life. You know, it says, bring ye all the tithes into this storehouse that ye may be meet in mine house and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord, if I will not open up unto you 
the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. You see, even some little thing like this, the love of money, this was the fact that was keeping this young man always down in the clouds, in the fog, in the damp atmosphere. He wasn't happy and joyful. And then finally, another one is mentioned here in the second chapter, verse 2, uh, verse 22, flee youthful lust. You know, lust is a deadly thing. And it, it, I don't care who it is, it's from the pastor down to any individual in the church. Outward immoral sin begins in the thought. It's not the first look that is the sin. It's the second look. I want to tell you, we need today to think carefully of, about our lives. Can you see Paul? He's talking to this young man, Timothy. He wants him to be a mighty power for God. He wants him to be happy. He wants him to be in the sunshine of God's grace. And I can see him as he's writing, his finger is trembling. I see a tear coming down his cheek. I think Paul feels a lump in his throat as he writes, But thou, O man of God, flee these things, but follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. Did you ever hear about that black boy that was in the war, in the trenches in France? The bullets were whizzing around him and he knew that death was just sometimes just a few inches away. The bombs began to explode and he, he, he became very nervous and frightened and finally he threw his rifle out and he ran toward the rear as fast as he could go. And the captain yelled and said, hey, where are you retreating to? He yelled back, boss, he says, I ain't retreating, I's advancing to the rear. You know, when we come to face to face with these sins that I'm talking about here, pride, strife, envy, gossip, evil surmising, love of money, it's time for us to retreat. By the grace of God, by retreating, we will actually be advancing our Christian experience. All right, let's look at the next. While there is a time for us to retreat, there is a time to take a stand. All of you have television sets. Occasionally, you'll turn the dial and maybe you'll turn it right on when there's a football game. I remember one time in the other room, there was no one was looking at it, but here it was, and evidently the, they were right down to the goal line. And I remember the words coming out, the yelling, the screaming, hold that line, hold that line, hold that line. What were they wanting them to do? They wanted that group of men to take a stand and hold firm and not to budge. that ye may be able to stand, the Bible says, against the wiles of the devil. We read that in our scripture reading this morning. 
Take a stand. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Watch ye therefore stand fast in the faith. Quit ye like men. Be strong. God wants us in certain times when there are certain things that come that we are to stand up and be counted and not to be wishy-washy as we see some individuals in their character. Take those three Hebrews. Do you remember their story? Can you feel the heat of that fire? In that day, I don't believe there was ever a fire that was hotter. It says they made it seven times hotter. They poured in the pitch. There must have been men there with their billow bellows that were just pumping away and just making that so hot as the flame was crackling. Can you feel it? The heat? It was so hot, you know, that when men got up there near enough to throw anything in, they were burned up themselves. See those three Hebrews standing there. Under that kind of a, a feeling, and they could see the flames licking and the smoke billowing into the skies. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were commanded to fall down and to worship an idol. But God had said, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them. And those three men, did you notice the stand that they took? They said, it, We are not careful to answer thee in this matter. There wasn't any doubt in their mind about it. They weren't going to have to think it over. They didn't have to pray about it. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy God. Those three Hebrews took a stand. And I want to tell you, friend, when you take a stand, God takes a stand with you. When they were cast into the fiery furnace, the Lord was with them. He stood right there. Even those things that had been bound, the ropes were burned off. God takes a stand when you take a stand, when it's for the right. As we read in the text, having done all to stand, don't compromise. Have some of you been looking at things lately that you should never look at? Have you been going to places that your feet should never take you? Do you find your mind dwelling upon some thoughts that uh, they should never wander into? Do you discover that your tongue is saying things that you should never be saying? Take a stand. Ask God to come in and help you. You know, God today in the church wants an army of men and women and boys and girls who will stand up against law-breaking, against uh, rock music, against these X-rated pictures, and this frivolous living that's all about us today. He wants individuals that will stand up and be different. The world can sense it. This means that we will yield everything to Christ. Our living, 
our failings, our weaknesses, our temperaments, we give to him. He is the one that can change it. Our love affairs, we put them in the hand of God. And remember, when God joins together, he never separates. Our children, the love, our business, everything we do, we need to surrender to him. You see, the problem is, and I've told this sometime before, if I remember, but it's like renting a house. You go in there and the house is just what you want. And uh, suddenly you discover there's a couple of tigers over there on the sofa asleep. And you say, well, what about this? Well, he says, you know, when you rent the house, why the tigers, this is their home, they stay, they're all right as long as you don't upset them. Would you rent the house? Yet we ask the Lord to come in and we say, Lord, there's a couple of pet tigers, a couple of pet sins that we want to keep. And yet we want the Lord to come in and to make his home there. God does not take over our hearts unless he has it all. Yielding. If we want a Christian life that is above the clouds, where the sunlight is always there, the joy of Christian living, and you can feel the power of God just permeating you, you've got to have total surrender in your life. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And Psalm 16, 11 says, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. I'm so happy that I have a home that's up above the clouds, as it were, in the plains below. Many, many times as Nelson and I stand there at the window and look out and how we talk about how wonderful it is to be able to live in such a place. And how wonderful it is to meet a member in the church who is always having a Christian experience that you just feel is bubbling over, that you just feel you want to be in their presence. You just feel that they have a hold on God. You just feel that they have the power of the Lord Jesus with them. That's what we all need. Advance. While we need to take a stand, there comes to take the time to advance. I want to ask you something. You don't have to raise your hands. How many of you ever ride a have ridden a bicycle? Do you remember when you started out? Can you ride a bicycle if you don't go forward? Have you ever tried to ride a bicycle and just get on it and just stand there and balance yourself? It's impossible, isn't it? You've got to keep moving. If you stop, you will fall over and hurt yourself. In 2 Peter 3, verse 18, it says, But grow in grace, in the knowledge of our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. 
if we are going to be strong in the Lord, there must be a constant growth. We need to have this close experience in body and soul. It means advancing every day. How? By Bible reading. We need to read, desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. We need to meditate upon it. We need to hide the word of God in our hearts. You remember that wonderful word from the psalmist, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. We need to take these promises of God and make them a part of us. We need to pray. Did you ever go through a day without prayer? Sure you have. I've done it. Do you ever look at the end of the day and find out that things weren't like you wished they could have been? You know, prayer is one of those things that is necessary if you're going to live above the clouds of the evil of this world. The God who numbers the very hair of your head right now can tell how many you have. Don't tell me that that God isn't interested in hearing your prayer. Witnessing. Oh yes, witnessing is a part of the advancing. After conversion, it's God's purpose that we all witness to his grace and power. Are we a minute man? Are we always ready to speak up? Are we a commando for God? Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father, which is in heaven. To know that Jesus Christ is there talking to the Father about you and the wonderful things that you are doing for him, I want to tell you, witnessing is a very important part of the advancing in your Christian experience. Maybe you somehow feel like the Western Union. I remember one time a fellow came and knocked at my door and handed me a telegram said it isn't very good but he had to deliver it it announced the death of my father but he had to do it he had no choice you know we're like the Western Union we may have good news we may have bad news we can't open up the telegram we can't change it it's our duty to take the message the message is found in the Word of God Sometimes it strikes against people. It points out sin. You know, there are those uh, who profess to be Christians in the world today who are neglecting to take the message because they think that it will somehow make somebody not too happy. There are those in the world who tear it up. They substitute their own. Some of them take it apart. And they say, well, God didn't even write it. And they say, well, God didn't even mean what he said. Brothers and sisters, remember, our duty is to deliver the message. We are the sowers of the seed. We have a light in a dark old world, and it's our business to let it shine, no much how the wind blows to blow it out. We have a trumpet. 
In the din of battle, it may not hardly be heard about us in the community, but we must blow it. We have a fire, a fire of light. We must allow it to blaze up and to burn, even though the wind may almost drive it out. You say, I, we have a hammer to strike. Oh, but mine is so small. But we must keep hammering. We must. We have a sword. We have the sword of the sword of the Spirit, and we must use it. We have the bread of, for the hungry. Oh, people may be so filled up with other things that they don't want the food, but we must continue to offer it. We have the water of life. We must continually cry, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the water. I want to ask you, are you this morning retreating where you should retreat? Are you taking a stand when God expects you to do so? Are you advancing every day in your Christian life? Only thus will we bathe in the sunshine of the mountain peaks that God wants us to experience. It was winter. It was cold. There was snow on the ground. Father sat there before a fire that was going down, about to go out. The son was reading a book that he was absorbed in father turned to the son he said son will you kindly go out to the woodshed and bring in a stick for the fire there wasn't any reply again the father kindly asked the son three times he asked the son to go out the son paid no attention finally the father stood up on his feet and said son if you don't get the wood you can leave the house. The boy threw the book down and he stormed out through the door and slammed it shut. Two weeks went by. The father sat brokenhearted, but he was teaching a lesson of obedience. There was snow on the ground, it was cold. His own fire was just about to go out when there was a knock at the door. He opened it and he saw his son cold and wet and shivering and the father boy said, Father, I'm sorry. I'm hungry and cold. Please let me come in. For a moment the old man sort of melted. There was nothing more he wanted than his son back in the home. Then he grew stern in kindness and said, Son, the same stick is in the same woodpile. Go out and get it and bring it in and you can come in. You know, God is trying to teach us a lesson these days. Is there some stick of sin in our life that ought to be put on the fire? Oh, God, help us to do what the Lord has asked us to do about some of these things in our life, that we may come in and share in the wonders of the sunshine, the sonship 
that belongs to us in fellowship with God. Retreat. Stand. Advance. And we can live in the sunshine of God's grace.